The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today, we have episode 140. At the end of the episode, we have two chapters from Beyond Brightside. So, my pity party is over. Um, did a lot of uh, thinking this week. Had some good meetings. Had some good shit happen. Uh, talked with friends. Got some cool emails. Uh, just a lot of uh, people helping me put things back into proper perspective. Or the best perspective um, and the perspective that I want, uh, you know, trying to always keep a positive perspective. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult, um, but it's what I'm doing. So, you know, and, and a big part of it too, is realizing just how many other people have much, much, much worse problems, whether it is uh, brain damage, you know, from traumatic brain injuries or whatever else, or it's cancer or whatever it might be. Man, my problems are good problems to have, Maybe not my brain problems, everything else. Um, but even that, my brain issues are not that big. Um, but first, let's get into what I have done this week. Well, first, most importantly, bam, uh, Try Not to Die in the Wizard's Tower. That book is now out. It is available in Kindle and paperback. Uh, it's got some cool-ass illustrations. Uh, my friend Sage Ricci. He did all the illustrations. He wrote the story. He did the front cover, the back cover. Um, incredible job. So congrats to Sage for getting all that done. We will have a book two with the same characters. Um, don't know when that train to die will fall, uh, but it's pretty cool. And then I think he is going to do his own little probably trilogy separate from this with those characters. So uh, definitely check that out if you're a fan of Dungeons and Dragons. If you like fantasy stuff, uh, this book should be right up your alley. So pretty exciting that that came out. Um, I was really hoping to get the print copies by tomorrow. Uh, looks like they're going to be a couple days late, which sucks because I'm going to be at Season Screaming. Um, I have a booth with a couple other horror writer friends. Uh, we're all members of the Southern California Horror Writers Association. Well, we're all in the Horror Writers Association. We all live in Southern California. Uh, so we decided to get a little booth at the Season Screamings. Um, it's also the people that do Midnight Scream, I believe, and Awaken the Spirits. The last event we did, we all did a great job, sold a lot of books, met a lot of people. So that's what I'm hoping this time. Uh, it's a little bit of a bummer that the Try Not to Die in the Wizard's Tower isn't out, but it's cool. You have all the postcards and be able to hand those out. People could order it online, all that good stuff. Uh, I am interested to see how the TBI or CT book does there. It's not horror. Uh, some of the stuff in it is a little dark and disturbing. And uh, But uh, I think you know fans that are interested in my writing might also find it interesting to take a look inside my brain and see you know what the hell is wrong with me. So um, that's what's going on on that end. Uh, so yeah, so tomorrow's my wife's birthday not working the festival because of that and I'm not working it tonight celebrate her birthday then Sunday I'm just going to spend the whole day uh, signing books selling books all that good stuff meeting people handing out brochures all that kind of cool stuff and I really do enjoy that I uh, I like meeting people I like uh, spreading my stuff and helping out my friends that are in the booth with me too which is kind of cool we all help each other sell each other's books uh, so that's pretty awesome 
So on Monday this week, I had a pretty long drive. I had to drive an hour to go check out this new therapy. Um, it's called Softwave TRT. Uh, what is that? Softwave Tissue Regeneration Technologies. Uh, my brother Steve had recommended it for my plantar fasciitis. He said a lot of chiropractors he knows just are swearing by it. It says it's a pretty amazing machine. Um, it sends out electrohydraulic sound waves at 3,355 miles per hour. Um, this creates a shearing force on a cellular level that helps break up the scar tissue and remove oxidative stresses. Um, it's also supposed to help uh, stimulate your own stem cells and bring to that area to increase healing. So right now it's too early to tell whether or not it's helping. It's about a series of 12 different um, sessions. Uh, it's a little painful, it wasn't bad. Uh, but the cool thing is not only am I working on my foot, um, but at the same time, he's also able to hit my right knee, which I was going to go get stem cell for, or at least see if I was eligible for stem cell. Um, so my knee's already feeling a little bit better, which is awesome, especially after this one visit. So if I could knock out both of these things, it's worth the drive, it's worth the time and, uh, and the money because it'd be much cheaper than getting stem. So I'm excited about that. I'm hoping that helps because honestly, walking around every day in pain fucking sucks and again you know i know so many people have much 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 worse things and they would gladly trade me for a sore foot um but the reality is it does fucking hurt and even just going to go get my kids like by the time i get back home I'm like God, fuck, i just gotta get off my feet and it just hurts and aches and whatever else i just gotta deal with and stop being a little bitch um i'm sorry if that's not politically correct i didn't mean it that way. Oh man. So what else? What else? What else? So that's what I did the other day. Um, that was on Monday. The rest of the week was cool. Uh, didn't get a whole lot done. Really trying to just deal with taking a little bit of time off. Um, I was getting to the point where I was starting to feel like, man, this is like almost borderline, not mental breakdown, but like getting to a point where ready to just shut shit down again. I've done that before where I've completely closed everything off. Um, I had a podcast before this one. I just shut it down out of the blue, um, shut down all social media, just didn't want to deal with shit anymore. Uh, that thought comes up every once in a while, but I'm not going to let that happen again. Um, and it was good for me to realize why it was happening. Because uh, not only have I been a little bit concerned with my own brain stuff, but I'm having conversations with people again and those conversations are fucking sad. Uh, you know, talking about their brain issues, you know, getting getting emails from people that have terrible symptoms whose, you know, husbands or, or sons have killed themselves because they've had brain injuries. Um, a lot of that stuff starts to weigh on me a little bit, like personalize a little bit. Um, and like the other day, I just went to lunch with a teammate of mine. I hadn't seen him in probably like 30 years or so. Um, I played with him in high school and in junior college and, you know, we just had lunch. It was, it was awesome. Uh, but right away I'm asking about traumatic brain injuries and, uh, he didn't think he had too many and he seems to be doing fine, but he brought up one concussion that he had while we were playing together at Mount Sac. And he said, you know, he was knocked unconscious. He came to, and he couldn't remember his name. People were asking him his name. He couldn't remember it. And he just was kept crying and like his brain was just such a mess. And then was telling him to stop crying. He said it went on for like 10 minutes. 
And then he started, everything started coming back to him a little bit. And then they sent him right back in. Like, that's how shit was, um, you know, and just so dangerous. Uh, but, you know, those kinds of stories, just remembering, um, you know, bring it, it brings up a lot of stuff, especially about, uh, I just had this talk with my daughter yesterday, because two nights ago, it was after meeting him for lunch, I, I told my daughter, I said, hey, and my wife as well, I said, just to let you guys know, you know, I might be in a little bit of a funk, you know, I, 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 and just to give them a heads up that, uh, you know, not to take anything personally, not to worry about me, but that, you know, because I am looking at a very sensitive subject um, and knowing how I reacted before when I saw my brain damage and what I was up against, um, I was like, you know, I just giving them a warning, like, hey, daddy might be a little bit sad. He might be a little bit whatever, you know, I might need some more hugs, uh, um, whatever else it might be. And not, I didn't want to, you know, say that to put anything on them, like making it feel like it's their responsibility to make me feel better. Like that wasn't the case at all. It's like, no, just letting you know, so you aren't taking it personally. So if you notice I'm a little bit down, like that's what it is. Um, but also not to worry about my brain. So we had that talk, uh, I think that was probably Wednesday. And then yesterday I had my appointment for the a neurologist. My wife found me a great neurologist. He actually is a neurologist for the LA Rams. I think he's on the California Athletic State Commission. He's a sports neurologist. He deals with all kinds of traumatic brain injuries. So I was a little bit nervous about that, especially, you know, my biggest concern is, have I been wrong this whole time, hoping that my, and not even just mine, but CT in general, okay, if someone had a lot of traumatic brain injuries, you know, does that mean that can we stop? Can we stop CT from happening? Can we stop this neurodegenerative disease from just eating through your brain? Or is it once it's started, are you fucked? Is it too late? Like maybe all I've done is, you know, taking care of the symptoms for a while, but it's still going to degenerate. You know, that's, that's been my fear. Um, and not a huge one because I understand like, even if I'm able to improve my life, until it gets really, really bad, then that's awesome. Then it means I had a really good life for a long time and a lot better than, you know, friends that have already died and shit like that. So um, that was my big concern. But I went in, I brought, I got my MRIs from the Cleveland Clinic. I had two of those. Um, I had all my IVA tests. I had my um, Cambridge science testing. I was able to bring all that in. Uh, the doctors were amazed. In fact, he told me, he's like, you know what? He's like, I've never had anyone come into my office this prepared before. And I gave him a copy of TBI or CTE. He was really grateful for that. Um, and he loved my message. Cause I told him, I told him what my concern was with the CTE and whether or not, you know, I said, is it, am I being unrealistic by thinking I may have prevented this from happening? And he's like, no, hundred percent. No. He's like, you're, you're correct. Um, he's like, that is a, the right attitude to have. And whether he was saying that because, you know, having hope and not being nihilistic is huge um, or because all the science is there, I, I'm not sure. But I am going to go back. He's, he's up for being interviewed for the book. Um, I told him I want him to guide me on this journey of like really rehabbing my brain. Um, and so he's on board, which is awesome. So that is really cool. I was excited to hear that. And then I also did some testing there. Uh, same day uh, I did uh, sort of like the, what I, the test I took before was the IVA2, which is a touch, testing attention and focus. Um, 
this test that I did, did some of that. And there was a really cool um, dynamic eye vision test. Uh, I hadn't done that before, but that was able to show me that part of my frontal lobe um, was off. I did the Cambridge science testing. All my scores were pretty close to what they had been before, except for the uh, spatial planning, which is also tied to the frontal lobe and the area that the QEEG showed had been um, like some had been under functioning. So whatever's going on, I've definitely had a little reduction in my brain's ability in that area. But overall, I feel good. I feel sharp. Um, I realize just how much of this is just uh, emotion and stress and worrying about shit, you know, so I'm going to cut that out. Uh, thank you to my good friend, Carl Dominique for uh, helping me remember that having a good talk with him. Also got a really cool email from Stuart from the Rockdown podcast today. Uh, just reminding me how much we just need to keep away from stress and worry and everything else. Uh, if you haven't checked out the Rockdown podcast, you definitely should, especially if you're into rock and metal. Uh, Stuart's an awesome guy. I appreciate him reaching out and kind of helping me out today. So that's what's happening with that. I On Monday or Tuesday, I'm going to go back. I'll get my QEG again, even though I just had a vital head and spine. I'm just going to have them do it. Uh, I believe I'm going to be starting transcranial magnetic stimulation or whatever it is. Um, my friends had told me about that before. I, one of my friends had really good results with that. That's what this doctor is recommending for me right now. So we're going to try that out. Dr. Licata had suggested hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Um, I wasn't sure whether or not we're going to do that. I still might. Uh, this doctor was saying there haven't been any really good studies uh, to duplicate. Like there's been some really good individual and small studies with the hyperbaric, but they haven't been duplicated in large studies. Uh, so he doesn't know if the, whether or not it's the best thing for your book. So I might, I think what I'm going to do first is I'll do the transcranial um, and see how that improves things. After that, I'll probably go to the neurofeedback, um, amp things up even a little bit more, and we'll see what I need, if anything, after that. I might be really good. So, you know, and that's what I kept telling the docs. I was like, look, I feel overall, I feel amazing compared to how I used to feel. Right now I have these concerns, um, you know, and I just want to rule stuff out. I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be making a really big mistake by skipping the neurologist. I didn't go to a neurologist for the first book. Um, part of that was because I didn't think I had any issues. Uh, you know, it took forever. My wife and I both kept saying, you know, I was fine. I was fine. I was fine. I would see some damage. We're like, okay, well, you have a little bit. And then I would fix that. Then I would do the next testing. I would see more damage. But then it got to the point where I was feeling good. So I never felt like I needed a neurologist. And I was also a little bit scared about hearing how they might respond. You know, if they say, well, yeah, you are fucked. Um, I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want to hear that. It probably wouldn't have been good for me. Um, so that's why I didn't do it. But this book has taken a little bit of a different turn. And uh, that's what we're starting out with. And so this will be the start of writing the book. Um, you know, just the fact that I am also taking on a new book, a new project, a new nonfiction project, that was causing a lot of stress as well. But again, you know, I just have to let that shit go. Um, I can do this nonfiction project, work on some try not to dies along the way. I just have to be smart with how I'm doing it. Um, I can't do too much of the work. Like I just gave John Palisano the Wild West back. And I told him, you know, I'm stuck right now. I can't really do any more here. You develop 
it further. So then I'll be able to take it over. Uh, if I could just jump in and out of these different books like that, I can do that. I do have to put my other stuff on the side. Um, well, one, I swore off more contracts. Like, so I'm not taking any more contracts for a while uh, for trying to do that. I think right now, I don't know, it's like 20 to 25. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, if I bring on anyone else, it would just cause more stress, more, I'd be more overwhelmed. So I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, but I also have to be okay with just letting my fantasy trilogy and the Tales of the Blessed and Broken, you know, I have four books in that that still need to be written. Uh, one of them is halfway done. It's been halfway done forever, but I'm just not going to have the time. So this brain book is more important. This whole thing is, uh, and especially because this isn't just me. Um, I'm going to be following probably four to five people. Uh, Carl is one of them. Uh, he's going to be getting treatment on the East Coast. I have another friend out there that I would like to do the same. I don't know whether or not he wants to be part of it. Uh, I have my old coach from Mount Sac. He said he would be down to do it. So I'll have, I think that's really cool to have, you know, different ages. I think, I believe he's 75 and he had a mini stroke. He's had a couple of speech things, uh, very poor sleep, similar to my mother. So it'd be great to see what we can do for him. Uh, I just lined up a UFC fighter, a female UFC fighter. She's very excited about it. She is rehabbing right now. She's not finished with fighting. You know, at first I was like, well, I wanted to get someone that was done with fighting, but I think it'll be awesome to see, okay, why not fix it while she's rehabbing? She might have some more damage when she fights, but why not improve her brain right now? It's not like going back into fighting is going to destroy her brain and set her back. It's like, no, these, these should hold. Uh, but again, I will be talking to a neurologist about that. I'll talk to my other doctors about whether or not she should be doing it prior. Um, maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe they'll say, oh, that's a really dumb idea. And we'll cancel that idea. Uh, but I also have a soccer player that I'm interested in, a female soccer player that's had a lot of brain issues I'm interested in following. So it's not just me. I can help out these other people. And then by helping them out, I'll be able to, you know, I think it's just going to be more proof like, okay, this shit does work. We can improve our brain health. Uh, we can improve our life. Um, another one of my good friends, I've, he's been on the podcast here a couple times before and, this, and on my old one a lot, uh, Fortunato. I convinced him and his to get neurofeedback for him and his mother, or at least get their brain mapped and see whether or not neurofeedback is correct for them. Because like Dr. Lakata said, you know, and I've seen this with some family members where he's mapped their brain. He's like, oh shit, you need to go see a neurologist or you need this. He's like, I can't help you with this yet. Or so, um, so I got Nato doing that. I have a couple other friends that I've referred over there. So that's always cool to see too. And that's what Nato was saying. He's like, man, he's like, he's like, dude, he's like, you're a great salesman because I see what it's done for you. So by, you know, continuing that by, you know, improving myself even more and by having these other individuals that go from, you know, the starting point, I'll, I'll measure them from the starting point to the finish and see what kind of jumps we've had, how much it improves their life. Um, so I think that'll be really cool. It is going to be some work, but again, whatever. It's just everything is headed in the right direction. Everything is, uh, yeah, just making these new connections. And uh, I just can't be in a hurry. I just have to be okay with it. Whatever happens, happens. And uh, yeah, I mean, especially, you know, and, and whenever I do get overwhelmed, too, I always go back to like, well, could be fucking dead tomorrow. So what does it matter? Like, really, I just need to appreciate today, enjoy today. 
if I do that, then that's awesome. Tomorrow I'll do the same. You know, I'll still be working. I'll still be productive. I'll still be moving forward in case I don't die. But yeah, just remembering that. Uh, I think that's a big thing for me. Hopefully you guys don't have that issue. Uh, but if you do, yeah, just think about, fuck it. Just make today an awesome day. All right, guys. I got to this late because of setting up at the season screamings. I still need to do my newsletter and all kinds of other stuff. Pick up my kids, play with them, all that. So I'm going to leave you guys with Beyond Brightside, narrated by Darren Elker. Hopefully you guys will dig it. If you haven't done so already, go out and get Try Not to Die in the Wizard's Tower. See how many times you die. It's probably going to be a lot. Uh, it's a pretty tough one. So, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have an incredible weekend, and I will talk to you later. Peace. Chapter 23 The gate slammed closed behind us as we drove to the right. Bins upon bins of newspaper, plastic bottles, and aluminum cans and rows along the fence. The warehouse's overhead lights were on, with two floodlights aimed at the mountain of cardboard covering the concrete in front of it. We circled the cardboard and headed for the back side of the building, pulled to a stop beside a loading dock. Jones lowered his window and raised his voice so he could be heard over the roar of the machinery. Am I good? Back up two feet, someone said, not far from me on the driver's side of the vehicle. Come on, just a little more. I couldn't remember whether there'd been a door in the back of the motorhome, but I had to be ready for someone to come in that way. This time I wouldn't hesitate to shoot. Both boots exited the vehicle and started talking to the recycling guy. I was sure this was it. They were going to be coming in here sooner or later and we'd be trapped. And we had no way of knowing how many boots surrounded us. I peeked into the corridor, saw someone coming. Dirt thought my name so loud I put down my gun. You're right, Joe. He helped me up and thought, it's our turn. My knees buckled and I would have collapsed if he hadn't grabbed me. I'm sorry, I'm not doing so good. Dirt checked over his shoulder. Well, buck up, soldier. These next five minutes will be the most important five minutes of your life. I took in as much air as I could and blew it out. Stood on my own. Fuck it. Let's do it. Dirt crept down the corridor, gun aimed at the cab. Here we go. Jones was talking with someone to our left, but I couldn't hear what it was about. Dirt crouched along the right side of the corridor so he could see out the driver's window. I did the same on the left. Nothing out the passenger window besides bins, a fence, and buildings on the other side of it. With the window down, it was easy to hear Hoop's irritation when he said, Where's the forklift driver? The recycling guy sounded stuffy like he was fighting a cold. Work at the bailer. So who's working the forklift? No one. I got Jose on the bobcat filling containers. We're not moving all these ourselves. Jones must have been leaning against the motorhome because I picked up his thoughts. Now going back in with the bodies was the last thing he wanted. Well, I don't know what you expect me to do, the guy said as he sucked back snot. There was an accident with one of the workers, and another one ran off a few hours ago. This is East L.A. Go pick up some fucking wetbacks. Easier said than done, muchacho. Jones said, Why don't we just bring in workers from the centers? Got no shortage of bodies. Look at that bailer. You got the first idea how to work one of those fucking things? 
No, but I can figure out how to drive a forklift. Knock yourself out. Keys are in it. Dirt thought. Hold tight. We move when he drives back. No one was coming my way, so I focused on the front window. The warehouse had a rear wall of corrugated steel, its massive roof at least 40 feet high. The far end of the dock had stacks of cardboard and plastic bales. A man with a green bandana over his mouth, safety glasses, and a thick pair of headphones sat behind the controls of the giant machine. The recycling center boot asked, That guy always such a dick? Pretty much. I've got these three. You be on the lookout for the intercom guy and any other boots. Copy. Dirk crept into the cab, fired three shots through the open window. He pushed open the door and jumped onto the loading dock before Jones and the other boot collapsed to the floor. I crouched beside him, my head on a swivel. The forklift was headed toward us, Hoop not seeming to notice anything had happened, the roar of the baler covering the gunfire. Dirt popped up and fired three more times. One ricocheted off the forklift, but the other two hit Hoop in the head, knocking him back in his seat, the forklift blades impaling a bale of cardboard. There wasn't anyone around us besides the baler operator, who hadn't noticed anything. There was a light on in the office on the other side of the warehouse. Keeping my gun by my leg, I walked along the conveyor belt stacked with body bags. Sandbags surrounded the main body of the baler, but I didn't pay them any mind until I stepped over them into a blackish pool of muddy blood that went halfway up my shins. Movement by the office made me look up. A boot stood outside the doorway, his hand on the walkie-talkie clipped to his windbreaker. The boot was twenty yards away, not a good distance from my pistol, but I had no choice. Although it looked like he was just curious where the others were, I wasn't taking chances. He saw my gun being raised and tried darting back into the office, but I was already firing. The boot clutched his right hamstring and scrambled for the front of the dock. I reached the edge of the dock the same time he did, but a good fifteen yards away. He flung himself onto the pile of cardboard and slid toward the blue building beside the front gate. I fired three rounds, but they all missed. Not able to rely on dirt saving the day, I jumped onto the cardboard, the jolt to my shoulder making me scream. I climbed over the cardboard and found the boot limping to the building's front door, only a few yards to go. I fired, and he collapsed, his hand going to his hip. The boot grabbed his radio and dragged himself behind the short wall. DS-14 is under attack! Agents down! DS-14 under attack! Fuck. I hurried over, careful turning the corner in case he had his gun out. The boot was pressed against the door, both bloody hands clutching his radio, no gun in his holster. He was thinking about his mother, how he wanted her to hold him. Through tears, he said, Please don't. His chubby cheeks and watery blue eyes burned into my memory. I felt awful. No anger, and only remorse. I'm sorry. The hole was an oozing black crater an inch above the boot's left eye. It stared right through me. The clanking and banging of the baler ceased, the night suddenly silent, just me and the innocent young man I'd killed. Dirt yelled my name, but I couldn't look away. Joe, I need you. Dirt was on the loading dock next to the motorhome. The baler operator and another worker, both in dark blue coveralls and filthy yellow safety vests, sat off to his side. Now! I didn't look at the kid again, 
confident I'd never forget his face. The cardboard in this section was only a foot high, but so soggy. I trudged through the pinkish-red sludge, my gun out in case anyone was hiding. Use the ladder. Dirt pointed at the end of the loading dock, his submachine gun ready but not aimed at anyone. I holstered my pistol because I only had one hand. Dirt helped me at the end by pulling me up by the windbreaker. He stepped close, only inches between us, his steel-gray eyes penetrating mine. Look, son, these fuckers are the enemy, every one of them. If you don't kill them, they won't hesitate to kill you. But no buts. Dirt shook his head real slow so I knew he was serious. You did what you had to, and you did a good job. I nodded, not sure if I believed that at all. The pep talk was over. Dirt motioned at the workers sitting on the crates. See what these guys know. He waved at the operation. Then get all this on film. We don't got long. Dirt ran for the front building before I could ask why he wanted me to do the questioning. I stopped a few feet from the men. What are your names? The little guy with the short brown hair said, Jose. The bailer operator pulled his ponytail out from under his uniform. Esteban. He tugged his ponytail, positive this wouldn't end well. Habla espanol. I made a so-so motion and said, Si, te hacen trabajar aquí? They both nodded. Esteban said, Vienen hace tres noches. Dio que mi jefe es un pinche telepata. Jose said, Hacen lo que quiere. Matan a quien quiere. Esteban said, No es mejor que el Ferrales. I got enough of what they were saying to know they wouldn't be a problem. I brought out my phone and started filming. I didn't know who, if anyone, would ever see it. But I pretended like the whole world would be watching. I reined in my emotions and buried the pain, acted like a real reporter. This is Esteban. I zoomed in on his face, caught a tear slipping out. The boots forced him to work this machine the last three days at this recycling center in East L.A. I turned in a circle to show the location. Since they came in and seized the property, the boots have been disposing of suspected thought thieves that they killed with no trial. In that motorhome alone, there are over 40 bodies from Detention Center 14 at Salazar Park. Instead of wasting time with the motorhome, I told Jose, Muestrame los contenedores. Jose got up and walked me past Hoop, flopped back in his forklift. But I kept the camera on the conveyor belt with all the body bags. Jose took me around the back of the bailer. Cuidado, es respaldizo. I filmed the ground slick with watered-down blood and gore, a pool of it around the clogged drain where they had been hosing it. Let's see what they do with the bodies after they go through that machine. Jose pointed out the small bulldozer. He said, Ahi, and pointed at the container pulled up to the dock, a chunky red trail between them. The smell of rotting meat grew worse with each step, the light from my phone just enough to see the bales of squished bodies and bags. The walls of the container seemed to be closing in on me, my vision going blurry. I don't know if he saw me swaying or could read my mind, but Jose said, Salir de Ali. He stood at the edge of the container and waved for me to follow. The air wasn't much better on the dock, 
that smell permanently part of me. I shook off as much as I could and resumed filming, turning the camera to the conveyor belt. I asked Jose and Esteban to unzip the bags so I could see the faces. I began halfway down the line, zoomed in on a teenage boy, probably still in high school, his hair slicked back with gel. This is someone's son. Next was a chunky-faced middle-aged woman, her jowls stretched down, her mouth open. Here is someone's mother. I had no way of knowing if what I said was true, but I hoped people got my point. This is someone's brother, someone's friend, someone's lover, someone's sister, someone's dad. There were only four more bags before the belt dropped them into the mouth of the bailer. I froze on the next face, forgot how to breathe, just stood there. Everything stopping because I was staring at Danny. Into those brilliant brown eyes with flecks of gold. A strained grimace instead of the smile that'd never shine again. God damn it. Not Danny. He didn't deserve that. His cheek was cold the first time I'd ever held it. The nicest guy I knew until he met me became a killer died in agony. A hand grabbed my shoulder and I jumped, nearly dropped the phone. Joe, put that away. We gotta go. I hadn't noticed the sirens before, but they sounded close. I didn't care. I was zeroed in on Danny, wishing he could hear just how fucking sorry I was. He knows. Dirt took my phone and slipped it into his pocket. Red lights flashed down the street, and he pointed at the back fence. Let's split. The chain-link fence with razor wire along the top separated the recycling center from the railroad tracks. Dirt had out a pair of wire cutters and started snipping from the bottom when a giant boom came from the front of the property. Another huge crash followed it, metal on metal. I climbed on a crate and looked that way, watched as the Boots RV smashed into the gate, knocking it free. I shouted to Dirt, they're in. He yelled at me to hurry. He'd clipped a line up to the halfway mark and then over a couple feet, peeling it back by the corner. Go! I bent over and squeezed through the opening, my windbreaker snagging on the fence, the metal tearing into my arm. Dirt ripped my windbreaker off and tossed it aside. He wriggled through the fence as the boots stormed into the center, one car after another rolling over the downed gate, their headlights flooding the warehouse. The train tracks were about twenty yards away from us, another twenty passed it to the back of the buildings on the opposite side. Dirt pointed out an opening between two of the buildings to our right and started jogging. I followed, figured they'd never see us in the dark, but then a small RV with a flashing siren on top flew around the back of the warehouse. It only had one headlight because it had been a rammer. I froze when the headlight flashed over us and prayed the driver hadn't seen us, but the RV cut its turn short and whipped back flying at the fence. Dirt was a few feet in front of me. All I could keep thinking was, holy shit! I kept pumping my good arm, going as fast as I could, looking back at the crash. The fence tore in half, one of the poles smashing in the RV's passenger side, the windshield all cracks. They're fucking nuts! Next left, car will be on the right. I didn't know what car, but he was out of my range. 
ducking against the wall behind a discarded couch, taking aim at the RV. The RV was only two lengths behind me and jumping the tracks. It was going to run me down, probably splatter me against the wall. A short blast of automatic gunfire ripped through the cab, the driver jerking the wheel hard, the RV smashing into the brick building and sliding to a stop just a few feet behind me. There was movement in the cab, the passenger with a bloody forehead raising his gun, thinking he had an easy shot at me. I was the faster draw and put a bullet through his head. From the other side of the vehicle, Dirt yelled, Run! I did what he said and took off at the corner. A boot stepped out of the motorhome's back door and brought his weapon up to mow me down. His brains blew out his forehead. No clue Dirt had been behind him. A boot cruiser drove over the downed fence and turned our way. I ran through the alley, heard Dirt right behind me. He passed me where the alley dumped into a quiet industrial street. He ran for the dark sedan parked on the right side. I thought it might be a boot car and shouted, Wait! Dirt threw open the back door and jumped inside. It looked like two boots in the front seat, but no one was shooting. There was someone in the back with Dirt who was yelling for me to hurry. I kept my gun out when I got in the car. Breathed so much better when I saw it was Tone behind the wheel. Becky beside him. Night 6, Chapter 24 Everything was black, except a faint light coming under the door. I couldn't tell if this was part of the real nightmare we'd been going through, or the awful one I'd been stuck in all night. There were voices, but tiny and muffled, so I couldn't even make out the language. The smell was death and disinfectant. My skin slick with sweat. The sweat became heavier, thicker, dripped from my fingers with a loud plop, plop, plop. The light flicked on, and I was in a large white room, a puddle of blood spreading on the floor ten feet away, directly underneath my mother's decapitated head. Mother stared at me with dead eyes, but her mouth moved. My little superhero. I told myself it was a dream, to wake up. Everything went black, but the darkness only held a second. We were in the back seat of the helicopter. Becky snuggled beside me. Two boots sat directly across from us. The one facing me was the newbie, clean-shaven with mushy gray stuff coming out the smashed side of his head. The newbie pressed his palm against the bulge, pushing back some of the brain matter, but spluttering out just as much. His voice came out all wrong, real slowly like Danny's. Heard you met my family. Chang was across from Becky. His head bowed like he was sleeping. Dirt leaned out of the passenger seat and pulled Chang's head back by the hair. Chang's throat peeled open, a clean slice across his throat. The broken puppet lip-synced to Becky's soft voice. I'm worried. The pilot turned in his seat, his skin charred blacker than his windbreaker, half his forehead crumbling to ash when it banged against Dirt's shoulder. Acting like nothing was wrong, the pilot sounded just like Tone when he asked, Is he hot? Chang's throat pulled all the way open, the sides of his neck ripping slowly. Ha <laughs> ha, hot, I get it. Everything went black and silent, entirely too cold except my feet rubbing back and forth on a soft red carpet. My shoes and socks were off, my feet so small. 
Told you to feel good, the man said. Hold on. I'm going to do mine. I looked back at the small television screen, ducked under the giant bullet, banged the top of my head on the block, chased after the mushroom, jumping on dragons with a beep and a bop. Spit sprayed my arm when the man whose name I didn't even know said, Oh, yeah, that feels good. His feet were twice the size of mine, his toes bunched up and pulling at the carpet, the knuckles red and swollen. I concentrated on the game, realized it was all timing, the coins there for my taking. You know what else I like to do? I said, uh-uh, my focus on the screen, trying to figure when to jump. Playing in shorts, or even my underwear. The sheets feel so good on your legs. I had on my usual brown corduroys. Maybe I can wear shorts next time. I don't know if this will happen again. He sounded all disappointed like mother when he said, That's fine. You don't have to if you don't want to. Dad didn't care if I sat around in my underwear if we weren't in public. Plus, I hated wearing pants and how the patches rubbed my knees raw. You don't mind? No, not at all. He put his hands over mine and pressed a skinny button, held the controller for me. There, it's paused. Wouldn't want to mess up a high score, right? I said, you know it, and yanked off my pants, took back the controller. You know what? Before I could guess, he said, that looks too good not to join. His long hairy leg brushed against mine. The van smelled like my parents' pile of dirty white laundry. I threw a turtle shell and knocked down like a dozen, but then one in a football helmet knocked the life out of me. What's wrong? His breath blew in my cheek. You keep on dying. My voice shook like an old lady's. I don't want to play anymore. Everything went black, and a woman called my name from far away. Someone shook my leg. The woman said my name again, but she was fading, the cold air on my thighs, which were covered with goosebumps. The man put his hand on my thigh. Watch. I'll make those go away. I only heard others' thoughts when I wasn't distracted, and I was too scared to read his. It was nice having someone care for me, touch me without hurting, but it no longer felt right. I wanted to run. What's the matter? he asked. You still cold? I said yes and reached over to get my pants. He grabbed the back of my shirt and spun me around, put my chest to the mattress, my face inches from the gray sheet metal siding. The stupid happy music kept playing, and it was hard to breathe, but I said, What are you doing? He covered me with his body, all his weight pinning me down. His voice lowered a few levels, dark and raspy. Warming you up. I tried to scream, but could barely breathe. Get off! One hand snaked around my throat, the other ripped down my underwear. Joe, wake up! Something slapped my cheek. You're screaming! I wasn't screaming anymore. My stomach stuffed to my throat, worried my insides had been rearranged. Becky said my name, sounding very serious. Open your eyes! It felt like molasses was weighing them down, everything black around her outline. Becky's voice got like father's when she said, Wake up. We need you. I didn't know who we were or what good I'd do, but I'd already decided I was with Becky to the end. 
I blinked and wiped away the gunk. Holy shit, I feel awful. They gave you a shot for the pain a few hours ago. She must have felt me digging at her thoughts because she said, You're pretty sick. My words came out slow. What did they give me? Not sure. We gotta trust them, though, because really, what do we know? Plus, they're all we got. I couldn't argue with that. I was on a couch in a small storage room, metal shelves to my side, disinfectant and shaving cream nearly covering the yeasty smell from my wound. She handed me a water bottle. Drink a bit and give it a minute. Let's see if we can get you to your feet. The water helped with my throat, not my burning skin. What happened last night? How'd you get away? Luck and strategy? These guys aren't a joke. Yeah. I'd be dead ten times over if it weren't for dirt. Becky held the side of her head and grimaced. To herself, she thought, I'm strong. I'm unbreakable. I won't be stopped. I asked, You okay? She nodded and took the bottle from me, offered her hand. So what do you think? You look a little better. I swung my legs off the couch, not so sure I'd be able to stand. Let's do it. Becky guided me by my good arm and opened the door. The fluorescent lights blinding. I told her I could use a second. As long as you need. My legs almost buckled, my belly threatening to purge. I blinked to open my eyes to help with my balance. We were in a barber shop. Big black and white tiles. Four barber chairs along the wall to my left, three on my right. The other two walls were giant windows with the blinds drawn, tone and dirt over by the door in the far corner. Bill, who had given me the dilaudid, was in the far chair on the right. He tipped his mug to me and said, Welcome back. Chip was in the far corner on the other side, wiping down a machine gun. Johnny, who had changed my bandage and said I needed more help than he could give, sipped from his Budweiser in the chair next to Chip. There was a television above each window, both stations on the same channel, a raging bonfire behind a blue and gold banner that read, Torch All Thought Thieves. Becky walked me toward Bill. Let's get you seated. I started for the first chair, but she said, Not that one. I didn't get it, so she nodded at the counter, the row of photos lining it, groups of Marines posing in the desert. Angel, Becky thought. This was his place, his chair. My limited memory of Angel wasn't enough to be able to recognize him in the photo until Becky pointed him out. I hadn't pegged the man as a barber. Bill said, That was his thing. Angel would just ask customers about their day and then listen. Said that way at least he wasn't eavesdropping. Dirt said, Plus these are some old-ass photos. He pointed to the photo of Angel and three other Marines dressed out in blues. You see him? I thought he meant Angel, but he was talking about my dad, guy on the right. Looks different without glasses, and I'd never seen him in uniform. Bill said, He's a good man. Tone agreed. Wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. It was hard to believe he meant in a good way, so I turned to the last photo of Angel sitting atop a tank three Marines on either side of him. One might have been Bill, but just as likely some random white guy. I looked up, my reflection in the wall-length mirror making me sick. My sunken eyes were the only thing I recognized, my face pale and gaunt. 
Johnny chugged more beer and motioned at my shoulder. Glad to see you're keeping it clean. The sling was a mess of muddy grass stains on the bottom, bloody yellow discharge seeping through the top. I climbed into the chair beside Bill, felt so much better off my feet, able to rest my head. On the bench that ran along the left window were several black windbreakers, blue jeans, and SWAT gear. In front of the other window, a pair of card tables were pushed together, weapons stockpiled on top. One of them looked like a grenade launcher. I heard Bill smile when he said, Mary, my M320, she's my baby. The news was playing on the TV, the sound muted. Becky followed my gaze. Just more of the same, more proof that we're heartless murderers and a threat to the country. What about our video? I gave it to Dirt, Bill said. The problem is getting it seen. The second it goes up, they'll shut it right down. Tone walked over to the weapons, inspected a machine gun. We got some good leads thanks to the laptop. If we can secure the right access, we'll be able to blast the videos. Not that anyone's going to give a shit, Chip said. Everyone wants us dead. Sharing these videos will be the biggest blow we can deal, Dirt said. I pointed at the new screen where boots in the park were being covered with blankets. Looks like we dealt them a serious blow. Tone glanced up and shook his head. Twenty-two boots dead, but double that in prisoners. And they'll recruit that in an hour, Becky said, with disgust, not defeat. News keeps telling everyone to be brave and strong help the boots crush and eradicate us. Like he was playing a grade school teacher, Bill said, and don't forget that terrorists are hiring thought thieves to help their evil plans. The laptop was on and open, resting on the bench beside Tone, Donner's severed finger beside it. My queasiness returned and it became hard to breathe. Becky handed me a water bottle and told me to sip. I'll be right back. She walked into the bathroom and came back with a fuzzy white cat snuggled against her chest. Mello? He's okay? Becky said. Tone got him this morning. She set Mello on my lap. He missed you. I never knew I was a cat guy, but his purring helped me calm down. I looked to Tone. So how do we get access for the video? He set down the machine gun and held no hatred looking at me. Almost sounded respectful when he said, You've sacrificed enough, Joe. We need to get you to a doctor. I'm not going anywhere without Becky. And I'm not stopping until I make them pay for my parents. I turned to her. What did you find out? Becky didn't say anything for a second. Calm, like she was telling me the weather, she said. They were on your video. The conveyor belt. Oh, no. I hadn't recognized her parents. But all I knew about them was from a glance at a ten-year-old family photo. I wanted to hold her to make it better, but I just said, I'm so sorry, Becky. She nodded and turned to Tone, a deep groove that ran above her ear like a bloody lane between cornrows. So what's the plan? We need to nab someone in charge of their social media accounts. I've nailed it down to three men, but only one is local. And the entire operation is on high alert after last night. Bill pointed to the gear on the bench, but they won't see us coming. Our best chance is to get him leaving work. Dirt and I will go with Bill. What about us? You'll stay with Chip. Johnny will find you a doctor. Johnny sighed. Fat fucking chance, Becky said. No. No what? We go in shooting, 
and we stand too great of a chance of him getting away or killed. Well, it ain't like we can just go in and ask him to come with us. No, that's exactly what I'm going to do, Becky said. The girl I'd first thought of as frail and fragile stood tall in front of the vets, waited for them to finish their objections. Like it was already decided, she said, I'll go in alone and bring him out. Tone shook his head. If you haven't noticed, you got a little lucky last night. Another half inch and you're dead. But I'm not. What are you suggesting? That this guy is susceptible, just like any other man. Are you talking about sexually? Like he couldn't believe it, Tone asked. You want to seduce him? I was just as shocked. You're 16. 17 tomorrow. Tone shook his head. That's ridiculous. She looked right at him. Really? He's not going to imagine what it'd feel like squeezing my ass? Tone turned away, but we all saw him blush. He picked up a vest, pretended to examine it. You're not going. Becky looked at Johnny. What about my mouth? You don't think he might wish he had my lips wrapped around his dick? I said Becky's name so she would stop it. The tension running so high. No one breathing. They're not my words. Becky turned Bill's cheeks red with one glance, then shook her head like she'd had enough. This boot will think something, and I'll capitalize on it. What if he's gay? Or just not into you? She shrugged. We'll deal with it then. Tone turned around. Or recognizes you? Becky stood tall, met his gaze. Like I said. I don't like it. I didn't ask you to. In fact, I bet I like it less than any of you, but I also know it's our best chance. So where do we find this guy? What do we know? Frederick Anders, retired U.S. Army, now a director of the SSS. He's scheduled to be picked up from work at 8. Private plane to D.C. Leaves at 10, Becky said. Then we better hurry. Bill was behind the wheel, dirt in the passenger seat, a shotgun standing up between them. We'd been crawling through traffic for 40 minutes and just turned onto the Pacific Coast Highway, the ocean a dark void on our right. I sat behind Bill. The three of us dressed the same, blue jeans, black windbreakers, and hats. Becky had on a hat too, but hers was pink and flowery, drooped enough to cover the bullet groove. Becky was dressed as a civilian in a pair of beige pants and a blue blouse, the top three buttons undone to show cleavage. Her mind was a mad scramble running through all the possible outcomes. I squeezed her hand. You're going to do great. How much farther? She asked, her nervousness peeking through. We even going to make it? It's only a few more minutes, Bill said. Their building is right on this street. Dirt looked up from the laptop. We're on the wrong side of this battle. They got all the fancy cars and prime real estate. Meanwhile, all we got is a barber shop. Becky tested her radio, tucked her earpiece under her hat. Tone, who was riding in another car with Johnny and Chip, said, Copy, loud and clear. Becky blew out a breath, ran through her mantra. Unstoppable, unstoppable. The car was quiet, the wheels rolling on the road, waves crashing on the shore. Dirt slapped his knee and said, I knew I'd seen this slimy fuckhole before. He's the one they praised for turning in his own wife. Bill asked, Anders, when was this? Few years ago, start of all this shit. Dirt read from the article. 
Director Andrews is being praised for his exemplary patriotism, putting his country before himself and his family, something he did his 20 years serving in the Army. What higher honor is there? Andrews asked. My wife is an enemy of the state and has to be held accountable. Bill said, I remember that dude. Said he was a true American hero. Yep, although by the looks of his wife, I'd say he did it for himself as much as his country. Bet he got stuck with her in boot camp. What happened to his wife? Never made it to Brightside. Found her guilty of treason and duly executed. Becky asked, Did he remarry? Dirt typed away. Took about ten seconds. Not from anything I'm seeing. Becky asked to see his photo again. Dirt held up the laptop and expanded the picture. A serious-looking forty-something with a strong jaw and crew cut. Eyes so narrowed I couldn't tell the color. Bill said, Three more blocks. Becky was shaking. I whispered to her, You okay? I have to be. Bill said, No, we can scrap it and take them out on the road. They only have one vehicle assigned to him. Becky looked out her window, pretended to be interested in a passing building. No, I'm just being a baby. You sure? hundred percent. I had to get her to focus on me. Okay, Becky, what are you going to do if he's on to you? Shoot him in the face? Kick him in the balls? She forced a smile. Haven't decided yet. Bill put on his blinker and pulled to the curb. There are two blocks up, that four-story building on the corner. How much time do I have? They're scheduled to depart in 17 minutes. Okay. Becky climbed out of the car, shut the door, clutched her purse like it was invisible, and everyone could see her gun. It looked like she was about to lose it, so I told Bill to give me a minute. I'll be right back. Becky stepped to the edge of the sidewalk, afraid someone might see us. What are you doing? What is it, Becky? What are you afraid of? Where do I start? You've got this. She didn't want to say it, but finally asked, How do I look? She uncrossed her arms and let the purse hang by her side. I need you to be honest. My first thought was that she looked like a girl about to go to her first date, but I said, You look great. You're going to do fine, and I'll be right there if anything goes sour. But what do you really believe? Is it sexy enough? Too slutty? Just look at me. You don't have to say it. I didn't care that we were probably minutes from death. Here was a young woman unsure of herself, needing to hear the words she'd never been given. I stared into her ocean blue eyes. Couldn't have been more sincere when I told her. You're beautiful. Inside and out. She met my gaze. You're not just saying that? I leaned in, my cracked lips on her bright red ones. The lightest kiss so I didn't mess anything up. You're perfect. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. 